Thanks for joining me on this Cleveland baseball morning. The final from Target Field in Minnesota. It's the Cleveland Guardians 6, the Minnesota Twins 4. The Guardians take the first two games of the series and are set up for possibly a sweep today on the Sunday finale. I'm Davey Barris, lifelong Cleveland baseball fan, and I want to talk about the actual game on the field, the thing I enjoy watching baseball being played. And this was another weird game between the Guardians and the Minnesota Twins, right? The Guardians, I mean, at one point, at one point they have more uh, runs than they have hits. They eventually get to seven hits, but I mean, at one point it was it was ridiculous. They score two runs in the third inning without a hit. Absolutely ridiculous stuff. The walks and the hit by pitch early in the game, and then. I mean, the ninth inning, what the heck happened? What the? I, Brian Shaw happened. That's what happened. It, it, was like, it was like a meal. It's like when you had a really great meal. And maybe you're helping clear the dishes or something like that. Or maybe there's just, you know, there's a bite of one thing left. And you're like, yeah, sure, why not? You know, this has been a great meal. Why not? And you take that last bite. And now, like, that is stuck that flavor is stuck in your mouth for the rest of your night and you're like I shouldn't have done that. I shouldn't have done that. I, I was happy with the meal. I should not have taken that last bite. That's kind of what this game was, right? It was a delicious meal for Guardians fans. Six nothing game, nice and easy. And then Brian Shaw comes in in the bottom of the ninth inning and we we take one more bite. And we're like, oh God, we shouldn't have done that. Uh because it left a weird flavor in our mouth for the rest of the night. Uh so Class A is able to come in and get him out of it. But, which, again, two nights in a row, which should have been a blowout, turns into a lot closer game than it ever deserved to be. So, let's get into it. Let's get into the storylines of the game. And we've got to talk about the Guardians' offense kick things off because, man, I mean, a really, really bizarre way of going about scoring six runs. I mean, there were some strange plays in this one. Top of the game. Start things out. Stephen Kwan, lead off walk. Beautiful stuff. But but he's got Ahmed Rosario hitting behind him. And we all know what happens when Stephen Kwan gets on first base to kick off a game. We all know. Ahmed Rosario's going to hit into a double play. That's it's guaranteed. I mean, you could set your clocks by it. Not this time. Ahmed Rosario somehow goes down and gets one, hits it 103.7 miles per hour. It's a 19-degree launch angle, but it goes 388 for a home run. It had a 530 expected batting average, so it was definitely like going to be in the gap or off the wall, but somehow it carries. I we, I didn't think Ahmed Rosario was this strong. If this were Oscar Gonzalez, I'd be like, yeah, yeah, Gonzalez is strong enough to do that. But I didn't think Ahmed Rosario was strong enough to hit a home run on a 19-degree launch angle. Uh, that is a low, screaming line drive. And somehow he stays, he, he doesn't do the thing we all expect him to do, and he hits a home run. Now, in the third inning, yeah, Quan walks, and then Ahmed Rosario grounds into a double play. He does exactly what we think he's going to do in the third inning. Uh, although, I will say, Giovanni Urshela made a great play. You know, Ahmed Rosario did put it down the line. Urshela did range to his right, get it, make a quick turn to second base, who then they then make a quick turn to first. So it was a good defensive play, but still, Quan walks, Ahmed Rosario grounds into a double play. I told you, I told you you could set your clocks by it. Uh, 
Yeah, but he stays out of it in the first inning. So let's give Ahmed Rosario a little bit of credit. Once again, the Guardians are off and running in that first inning. They're off and running and scoring and up on the Minnesota Twins. That is Guardians baseball right there. I mean, this is what Seattle did to us, right? Seattle kept scoring in the first inning. They were doing this kind of thing to us. Now, finally, we get to do it to another team again. I mean, we have been doing it all season. So uh, it's nice to be able to do it to another team. So I can tell you from looking at Ahmed Rosario's radial chart, which shows you basically the launch angle of, uh, of a hit, I can look at just his home runs, and I can tell you that this is the lowest angled home run of the entire season for Ahmed Rosario. The next closest would be a 22-degree launch angle that he got off uh, Framber Valdez. Uh, earlier in the season where he hit a home run off him. Now, not the lowest launch angle of his career. The lowest I could find of his career was actually a 17-degree launch angle off of Jorge De La Rosa uh, earlier in his career. So uh, it doesn't tell me what year exactly it was. Uh, I guess I could do process of elimination here and see where it disappears. But it looks like it's definitely, yeah, his his 2018 season. So when he was with the Mets, he hit one at a 17-degree launch angle at 109.5 mile per hour exit velocity that went for a home run. So, yeah, uh, Ahmed Rosario doesn't typically hit many home runs below a 20-degree launch angle, but he gets one here in the first inning, a screaming line drive uh, off of Chris Archer for a home run. So Archer would not last very long in this game. He would leave with another injury, another injured Minnesota Twins. Their IL is absolutely ridiculous at this point. But, hey, we'll take it. I mean, we're not going to complain because uh, uh, who comes in a pitch for them after Archer leaves? It's uh, Cole Sands, and this guy just implodes. I mean, just absolutely implodes in that third inning. So, yeah, he walks Quan to lead off the third inning and gets Amon Rosario to ground into a double play. So, the Minnesota Twins fans are probably thinking, like, fine, all right, Sands is going to be fine. What's the worst that could happen? Well, the worst that could happen is he walks Jose Ramirez, he hits Josh Naylor, he walks Oscar Gonzalez to load the bases, now brings up Andres Jimenez, right, one of the best players on the Guardians, who takes a very tough pitch for ball four. Uh, it's up and out over the plate, but it is a little high. Uh, it is up above the letters. So he walks in a run. And then he goes and hits Will Benson on the foot. So he knocks in another run via the hit-by-pitch. So two runs come across on four walks and two hit-by-pitch and not a single hit from Guardians players. And they were talking about it on the broadcast. I mean, absolutely demoralizing. Even an old man softball when I'm standing out there in center field, if our pitcher walks that many guys in a row... It is demoralizing. It takes all the wind out of your sails. You just have no energy after that. So, yeah, it's no wonder that the Guardians are kind of able to run away with this game until the ninth inning. Uh, After something like that, two runs coming across the score with no hits. Unbelievable. And then they would add on to this. They would score again in the seventh inning. Uh, Ramirez and Naylor going back-to-back to kick off the inning, which is, that's nice right there. Jose Ramirez with a single, Naylor with the double, puts runners on second and third. Gonzalez chops one up the middle. Nick Gordon makes a choice here. He has a chance. If he wants to turn and throw home, he could turn and throw home and probably nail Ramirez. 
but he just gets locked on the Naylor and ends up running Naylor down between second and third. So Ramirez comes in to score. Gonzalez gets on with the fielder's choice RBI. And uh, yeah, the Guardians extend their lead uh, with one more in the seventh inning. Oh, you know what? I skipped the uh, fourth inning. They put together a nice little rally in the fourth inning. Again, a Stephen Kwan walk. This time, uh, a one-out walk. Ahmed Rosario does not ground into a double play. Thank God. He flies out. Uh, Quan had stole second base. On the flyout, he moves to third. And then Jose Ramirez smashes one down the right field line. It's amazing this thing stayed fair over the first base bag because it definitely landed foul once it got past the bag. But if it crosses over the bag, it's a fair ball. 102.1 mile per hour smash uh, down the line brings in Stephen Quan to score. Quan walks four times in this game. And scores two runs. I mean, that's why this guy's on-base percentage is just incredible. Uh, he's, you know, his batting average has slipped down to 287 on the season. He was getting close to uh, to 300 at one point. The OPS is sitting at 740 because, you know, frankly, he's not slugging a ton. But the on-base percentage for Stephen Kwan is at 366 right now. 366, that is solid. That is a solid on-base percentage from your leadoff hitter. And to score two runs via four walks is just a really impressive day for your leadoff hitter. I mean, Quan Quan will probably tell you, yeah, I'll take that every day. On base four times, causing havoc, stealing bases, scoring runs. uh, That is what he's all about. And that's why he's the perfect leadoff guy for this team. So a huge day. Now, I did look it up. Was four walks in a game getting close to the to the Guardians record, the Cleveland franchise record? No, not really. I mean, he'd had a while ago. Six walks is the record by Andre Thornton on May 2nd, uh, 1984. So there you go. Uh, May 2nd, 1984, Andre Thornton draws six walks in that game. So, uh, yeah, Quan didn't even have enough at-bats to get there to try to tie Thornton. So... I thought it was worth looking up, right? I mean, at four walks, you kind of wonder, all right, what is the record? Six in a game. All right, uh, so that's what was going on with the offense. It was a weird way to score six runs. Uh, Some unexpected things. Ahmed Rosario with a line drive home run. Unexpected. All those runs being walked in and hit by pitches in the third inning. Unexpected. Uh, The fourth inning and the seventh inning weren't too unusual, but it was an example of the Guardians doing a good job of getting that guy on and then getting him around to score. Uh, One is a one-out walk, one is a leadoff single, and they brought him around to score. So nice little rallies from the Guardians. That's more what we expect uh, from Guardians baseball right now. So on the other side of this thing, we've got pitching and we've got defense because we made some good defensive plays and we made some not-so-good defensive plays. So let's talk about that for a second here. Uh... Start with Andres Jimenez, who makes a beautiful diving stop off of Max Kepler uh, in the uh, top of the bottom of the third inning. Of course, it's the bottom of the third inning. Uh, Jimenez, with runners on the corner, makes a diving stop to his left. He's playing Rover out in right field. Uh, Hamilton calls it out, says this is not going to be possible next season because of the rule changes. But uh, Andre Jimenez with an absolute beautiful diving stop. And what made it even more special is runners around the corner. 
I mean, they had a chance to come back and put some runs on the board. It had an expected batting average of 730, and, and Jimenez absolutely robs them of a hit by playing that short field, that rover position. He's going to have to have his feet on the dirt next season. And it's going to be interesting to see where guys line up with their feet on the dirt. I mean, he could still be shifted over really close to first base if they expect someone to pull the ball that hard. And sacrifice, they're going to have to decide where they're going to sacrifice the hole, right? Are they going to have to sacrifice it more up the middle, or are they going to have to sacrifice it between first and second? That's going to be a decision they're going to have to make against left-handed hitters all the time. They're going to have to make that decision against Jose Ramirez when teams face us. They can get the shortstop as close as they want to second base, right? So they can set him up the middle, but they're going to be sacrificing a hole somewhere. Uh, we'll get to the rule changes in a second. We've got a good email that uh, came in from uh, Chris in New Jersey, who's going to kind of lead us into that conversation about the rule changes. Then another Kepler play. Oh, my God. This guy has to be just so pissed off at Guardians fielders right now. Bottom of the eighth, instant, eighth inning, Benson robs Kepler. Now, there's no one on base. We have the 6 nothing lead. So would a solo home run here be the worst thing in the world? Nah, probably not. Uh, but he flies out to left field. Benson goes back to the wall, leaps, snags this thing basically from the garden at the top of the wall. I mean, takes it from the flowers and steals this thing and comes back down with it. It only had an expected batting average of 230. So I don't know if it had been a home run in many parks. Uh, in Cleveland, it's probably off that 19-foot wall. But it's a 34-degree launch angle. It's 347 out there to left field and target field. And Benson with a beautiful leaping catch. I don't know... I mean, we've seen Quan make some ridiculous catches. We've seen Quan get up and leap for things. But I don't know if Quan makes this catch if he's playing left field yesterday. Just because, I mean, Benson stands like a foot taller than him. And his extension is so much higher than Stephen Quan's. And Benson has to catch this thing at full extension. So not to take anything away from Quan as a defensive fielder. It is just... It is just uh, a fact that Benson is taller than him and has a higher reach. And uh, yeah, so Benson makes a beautiful catch. And we've seen him make some beautiful catches out there in the outfield, especially going back on the ball. Uh, so another one, another stolen ball from uh, from a Twins hitter, from Max Kepler, frankly. He's the victim of both beautiful defensive plays. Now, on the other side of things, there were some not-so-great defensive plays. Jose Ramirez is having trouble throwing the ball when he is charging in. I don't know what is going on. He almost throws one away at second base, but luckily Jimenez is able to keep a toe on the bag. He does throw one away here in the ninth inning. Uh, you know, a ground ball. They think they're going to be able to make it out at first, and he absolutely sails his throw uh, and lets uh, a runner on. It goes as a single because he was charging in. I don't know. It scored as a single. But uh, Ramirez definitely throws one away here. He threw one away the other day at towards second base. And it seems like every time it's when he's charging in. When he's charging in on a slow chopper is when he's making these errors. So, uh, you know, he's a veteran. And I trust that he's going to figure it out. But it is uh, kind of a blemish on the Guardians' defense. On what was some good defense throughout the game. It's a bit of a blemish there. Uh, they did throw the ball around a little bit a few times throughout the game. All right, 
So that's defense. Uh, let's talk about pitching because Tristan McKenzie, fabulous game. I can't believe we're you know past the 15 minute mark in this podcast, and I'm finally talking about Tristan McKenzie because it was a rock solid start from him. Seven innings pitched, six hits, no runs, only two walks, five strikeouts, no home runs given up. On 97 pitches, he is hard hit hard, hard hit one two three four five six seven eight nine ten times, but no. Home runs given up by Tristan McKenzie to the Minnesota Twins. You don't realize how big this is. You don't realize. The Minnesota Twins have hammered McKenzie all season. The Minnesota Twins on the season, and this is in three starts against them. So three previous starts against them. This would have been the fourth start. I don't think baseball reference is updated. He was 0-2 with an 8.31 ERA on the season in three starts going into the game with a 1.385 whip. Now, he did have a good strikeouts per nine at 8.3. He had a good strikeout-to-walk ratio at 4.0, but he had given up seven home runs to the Minnesota Twins, by far the most to any team he's faced. The next closest was the Baltimore Orioles at four. So we know McKenzie has struggled with giving up home runs on the season, but he has given up seven home runs specifically to the Minnesota Twins. And he's able to come out here. He gets his first win of the season over Minnesota, shuts them down, no runs, no home runs given up. That is huge stuff from Tristan McKenzie. And you know what? Looking by month, he is having a better month in September than he was in August, although it's not as bad as it was in uh, in June. June was his worst month of the season. He gave up 10 home runs in June. Turns it around in July, goes 3-1 with a 1.34 ERA in July, one home run given up, goes 2-4 with a 3.03 ERA in August with five home runs given up. So you can see when the home runs start to creep back in, uh, things don't work out so well for Tristan McKenzie. Now, so far, in two starts in September, he's only given up one home run. He's 1-0. and I don't know what the ERA is because, of course, baseball reference has not updated, but he does get his first win under his belt in his second start of September, and keeping that home run total down is going to be very, very important. I'm sure he lowered his whip. Uh, he was at 0.882. I'm guessing with only six hits in seven innings pitch, it probably came down a little bit there. Or stayed close to that 0.8. So it's a really, really good start for Tristan McKenzie. Now, what was working? They were, I mean, when they were making contact, they were making hard contact. I'm not going to lie. 92.2 average mile power exit velocity off him. Uh, he, he, uh, They were hitting the fastball a lot. 16 balls in play off the fastball. Most of their hits on the night came via fastballs that were kind of up to the glove side. In the strike zone. But up to the glove side, a lot of the right-handed hitters were able to get hits off of Tristan McKenzie via that. One hit off of the slider. Um, So the slider wasn't super effective on the day either. The curveball, and you know, he's selective with when he uses it, but it was effective. It did have a 50% whiff rate on eight swings, four whiffs, three called strikes on it, uh, 39% CSW on that pitch, only a 26% CSW total on the day. But of those... uh, of those five strikeouts, a bunch of them, three of them did come via the curveball. One was a call strike to Gary Sanchez that just locks him up. 
One got Jake Cave swinging, and then one got Nick Gordon going down out of the strike zone, chasing on a 1-2 count. So uh, two of them came via fastballs at the top of the zone. So yeah, the fastball at the top of the zone was getting hit, but he also got a few strikeouts there. So I mean, all night he was very consistent with his fastball, pounding the top of the strike zone with that fastball, throwing it in and out both sides of the plate, attacking with the slider. He did leave a lot of sliders up. Threw a lot up at the top of the strike zone. Uh, a lot of them going for balls. A few swinging strikes up there. Got a few guys to chase up there with the slider. Uh, it's not as many. You you expect a lot more down and away with the slider. Not as many up at the top of the strike zone. And then the curveball, again, throwing it to both sides of the plate and keeping it down below the belt. Uh, really keeping it down, a lot down at the knees. So a good job with that curveball. It's a great combination. High fastball with a low curveball, is always going to be a winning combination in baseball. So that's what Tristan McKenzie was doing. He did get into trouble. There were moments. I mean, he had base runners on almost every inning. A two-out walk doesn't turn into anything in the first. A leadoff walk, which I was concerned about in the second, doesn't turn into anything. Strikes out Nick Gordon, gets Kyle Garlick into a force out, and then strikes out Gary Sanchez. So he's able to take care of a leadoff walk in that second. Uh, he ends up with runners on the corner in the third, but a, a shallow flyout, and then a lineout by Max Kepler. That was the lineout to Andres Jimenez. Gets him out of danger in the third. Uh, they are able to do that combination again with a double and a single later in the game. Uh, when do they do it again? In the fifth inning, a double and a single, but then Jose Miranda grounds into a double play, and the double play gets him out. That was the one where Naylor was all fired up at first base. Uh, runners on the corner situation again, and they get out of it. Uh, so the sixth inning is the only time they go one, two, three. The only time. He deals with a leadoff single in the seventh, a pop-out, fly-out, fly-out, and he's out of danger in the seventh. So a really, really strong start from uh, Tristan McKenzie in this one. That's the kind of guy we need on the mound. If he's he's going to pitch in a playoff game. This guy is, if we make it, he is definitely going to pitch in a playoff game. And this is the kind of Tristan McKenzie we need on the night. He was also very efficient with his pitches. Uh, you know, being able to go seven innings, being able to go deep into the game. So Sandlin comes in with the six-run lead, has a nice, easy eighth inning. And then Shaw's supposed to have a nice, easy ninth inning, but ends up giving up four hits, three runs, uh, four runs, three earned. So it wasn't walks. They just kept hitting this guy. They were all over uh, his pitches. And it wasn't just... The uh, cutter this time. Uh, if we go over to the illustrator here and we look at the singles and the doubles, uh, they hit his four-seam fastball, uh, and then they hit the cutter three times. Most of them were up at the belt. Most of the things that he was giving up were pitches that were middle of the plate, uh, you know, middle of the... They were on the arm side of the plate, but they were right in the middle of the strike zone as far as height goes, right at the belt. Uh, and that's what they were hitting. One player, Giovanni Urshela, does go down and get one at the knees, a uh, cutter at the knees. So, yeah, of course it was mostly the cutter because that's what he throws. But they did get one four-seam fastball in there. Jake Cave got a fastball uh, for the double. The double that was hit off him was the fastball. So, Brian Shaw comes in, and it's just a disaster. Uh, they just wait till those cutters come back into the middle of the plate, and they hammer him. And so, Classe has to come in and clean things up. Uh, and he gets up, he gives up a few hits first. Uh, he does give up two hits in this game, but I mean, it's one of those situations where he's just trying to pedal out of, uh, Shaw's mess, right? 
Uh, Shaw was the one that let water into the boat. Classe is in there bailing the boat out, trying to paddle to shore uh, before the boat sinks. So, man, I'm using a lot of analogies in this episode. Uh, so, yeah, so Classe is able to get the save. He's able to get the game under control, gets another ground ball from Kepler, and gets out of this thing. So, Ramirez makes a nice play, uh, you know, makes a nice strong throw to first base, redeems himself a little bit, and we walk away with the win. So, I mean, Shaw, with a six-run lead, you got to think, I mean, what's the worst that Shaw can do? I think this is the worst that Shaw can do. I think this is about as bad as it gets in the ninth inning. I know Guardians fans do not want to see Shaw in high-leverage situations. I, I understand that. And Shaw has been very hot and cold this season. Uh, I still think his leadership has been valuable out there in the bullpen, but definitely someone we probably need to replace for next season. I don't think we could take another season of Brian Shaw. Uh, we'll see here. We'll see what ends up happening. Uh, so, uh, yeah, the Guardians walk away with a 6-4 win. I think that's all my notes on this game. It, it was a pretty pretty exciting game. There was a lot going on in this thing. A lot of runners on base, a lot of people moving, steals happening. Uh, you know, Guardians have two steals. Jose Ramirez gets one and Quan gets one. Uh, so, yeah, there was a lot of stuff going on in this game. Uh, pretty exciting win by the Guardians to extend their lead over the Twins. The Twins are in danger of falling below 500. They're 69-69 right now. They're in danger of falling below 500 on the season. And now we've got the White Sox nipping at our heels, who are having an easy series out in Oakland. Uh, we play before them today, so they'll be able to see what we do. But it's a game-and-a-half lead over the White Sox now, who we are about to face uh, coming up in a little bit. We have one game at home against them, then we have a series in Chicago. So four left against the White Sox, so still plenty of games left to decide this division. But yeah, it feels like the Guardians have the Twins number right now. You know, if a few weeks ago against Seattle and Baltimore, it felt like the Guardians were the team out of momentum that had run out of momentum. Now it feels like the Minnesota Twins are. It feels like they're just not there for it, right? They get a rally going in the ninth inning, but they just cannot come up with the big hit at any other point during the game. I'm sure the, uh, you know, they, they went four for 11 with runners in scoring position, but I think that all happens in the ninth inning. Uh, well, no, you know what? They had guys on with doubles, and then singles moved them to third and put runners on the corner. So those count as hits with runners in scoring position. Not all hits with runners in scoring position turn into RBIs. So they actually have a decent day of doing that. Four for 11 isn't terrible. The Guardians went one for seven with runners in scoring position, and look at them. They end up with a 6 nothing lead. Uh, so it is a little bit of a weird game here. Uh, but yeah, the Twins just couldn't get that rally. They just couldn't get that RBI until the ninth inning. And at that point, it was too late. So uh, MVP on the day for this one. I was really tempted to go with Stephen Kwan for the four walks and the two-run score. It was just a great way to lead off the team. But I got to go with Tristan McKenzie. I mean, seven shutout innings is just a beautiful thing against your division rival. Uh, again, seven innings, six hits, no runs, two walks, five strikeouts on 97 pitches. It's just a rock solid. That's the best way to describe it. It wasn't a record-setting start. It wasn't, you know, I, he probably is going to pop up on Pitching Ninja's highlights a couple of times. Some of those curveballs were kind of nasty. I can see him getting a few Pitching Ninja shoutouts in his video today. But, uh, yeah, I mean, it wasn't the best of the best from Tristan McKenzie. He dealt with runners on base. He was hard hit 10 times, but it was solid start. 
It was a really solid start and a win for Tristan McKenzie and an MVP for the day trophy that he's taken home. All right, let's talk a little bit about these rule changes. Let's let Chris's email kind of lead us in here. Chris has a nice email for us. He says, what a nice start for the Guardians at Minnesota this weekend. Hopefully they can take another W today. Oscar Gonzalez just continues to post superb offensive numbers as he had throughout most of his minor league baseball career. I'm guessing this email was sent after that game one victory. Uh, So we did. We did, Chris. We got another W for you. On the rule changes, Chris says, I guess I'd have to consider myself a traditionalist and can't say that I'm a big fan of them. As far as the base size increases, it's really going to benefit fast, aggressive teams like the Guardians. For the shift restraints, I think the onus really should be on the hitters to hit it where they aren't and be able to go to the opposite field and not to artificially try to improve batting averages across a league. Finally, I think I dislike the pitch clock the most of the three. I have some questions about this. So when would this either 15-second or 20-second pitch clock begin? Um... And then what happens if a pitcher goes over the limit? Is there an enforceable penalty? Uh, So we are going to answer those questions. I'm just going to finish your email here, Chris. The ironic thing about these changes is that if the goal is to shorten game times, which I don't think real baseball fans really care about in the first place, increasing base sizes and shift restrictions only counteract the potential benefit of enforcing a pitch clock, right? Pitch clock might speed the game up, but more runners on base, more hits is going to extend games. Uh, Baseball is a thinking man's game. And a lot goes into pitch sequences and positioning on the diamond. And I just feel that these rules really limit some of the strategy. I haven't been a fan of Rob Manford as MLB commissioner. I'd love to hear your perspective on these rule changes. All right, so here we go. Let's dive into the rule changes and let's answer his question. So first about the pitch clock, I honestly can't find a good quote about exactly when that clock starts. Is it when the pitcher steps on the mound? Is it when he receives the ball back from the catcher? I would assume... It's when the pitcher receives the ball back from the catcher is when that clock is going to start. And yes, there is an enforceable penalty. If the pitcher is not ready to throw by the time that clock runs out, a ball is enforced on the count. And the same thing with the hitter. If the hitter is not in the box ready to go within, I think, eight seconds, a strike is enforced. So there are penalties on both sides. It's not just the pitcher who's going to get penalized. The hitter has a chance of being penalized, too. Um, and it does, uh, it does increase the game time. I gotta be honest. It, it did decrease game time. It did exactly what they wanted. I mean, I think it shaved like 20 minutes off of the minor league games on average. So yeah, I honestly, these games that start at seven o'clock and end after 10 at like 10 30, uh, it's, that's rough. It's a long game. I, 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 there's something to a Cavs game that starts at 7 o'clock, and by like 9.15, it's it's done. There is something nice about that to not, uh, you know, come. I, I love baseball, believe me, but I have a real hard time with cooking dinner and taking care of the, you know, the kid and, and want my wife wanting to do things. I have a real hard time being locked in for all nine innings because it takes a long time, uh, you know, to get through a game. And there's a lot of stuff going on in my house at night. So it is the pastime. I like having it on in the background, but uh, you had to tighten up games a little bit to get those games done before 10 o'clock strikes for those 7 o'clock starts. It would be kind of nice. I would. I'm not going to lie. So I think if that answers your question, yes, uh, there definitely is a moment where this clock starts. I'm going to assume when the pitcher gets the ball, 
And then, yeah, there are definitely enforceable penalties for both the pitcher and the hitter. Uh, now, the thing about the shift and the bigger bases, the bigger bases, they say it's more to prevent injury. Yes, it is going to help stealing. It's also to stop uh, guys oversliding that bag at second base when they steal or third, which I always hate it. I always hate that a guy steals a bag clean, but because his body, you know, because he loses contact with the bag for a split second, he's out. So it is going to help with that. Yeah, it's going to increase steals. They were seeing it increasing steals in the minors. Uh, They said that in the minors, Steel attempts increased from 2.23 in 2019 at a 68% success rate to 2.83, so an increase of 0.6 steel attempts at a 77% success rate. So the steals go up and the success rate went up. And that is going to benefit the Guardians the way they're constructed right now. The uh, Guardian, you know, the Cleveland teams of the 90s, no, not so much. But the way they're constructed right now, yeah, it's absolutely going to help them because they've got some speedy guys that will steal. Uh, but they say it's to prevent injury, and especially at first base, right? It's going to prevent guys from clipping each other's leg. We saw that twice right in the Seattle game where uh, Ty France got hammered twice at first base and had to leave the game. So will this prevent injuries? That I mean, if it does prevent injuries, that's a good rule, right? If it does prevent guys from getting hurt on collision-type plays at the bases, that's a good rule. And then as far as the defensive shift goes, Here's I was thinking a lot about this. And, you know, there are some things in place in other sports. In football, you have to have a certain amount of guys on the line of scrimmage. You can only have so many guys in the backfield. Does it really affect the game? No, probably not that much. Like, we all got used to that. Uh, There aren't really defensive limitations in football. But there are, you know, defensive limitations maybe in the fact of how long you can engage a wide receiver at the line of scrimmage, you know, how far downfield you can make contact with him. So there are defensive limitations, maybe not in where you can line up, but how you can attack, you know, defensively. So, yeah, we've seen it in other sports. Yes, it increased, uh, you know, throwing in the NFL. It increased receiving yards and completion percentages in the NFL. And is it going to increase batting averages? 100% absolutely it is. Will the Guardians take advantage of that with some of their pull hitters? Yes, absolutely they will. Jose Ramirez is a prime candidate for that. I mean, watch this guy's batting average shoot up from where it already is, a very respectable batting average, to, uh, you know, the Tony Gwynn-esque levels maybe with that defensive shift limited. They're still going to be defensive shifts, but now they at least have some restrictions on it, right? They have to have their feet on the dirt, they can't. They have to have two fielders on either side of the bag, and those fielders can't switch places. It's not like you can take your shortstop for a left-handed hitter and swap places with your second baseman. Once they're set defensively, that's the side of the bag that they have to be on. And, uh, you know, I was also thinking in basketball, right, where you, they restrict the paint, right? You can't hang out and just guard the paint, you know. Jared Allen can't just sit the center for the Cleveland Cavaliers if you're not a basketball fan can't just sit in underneath the hoop and wait for someone to drive and swat him away. He's got three seconds, and then he's got to keep moving from side to side and stay out of that paint. It helps the offense out, right? It opens up the lane so people can drive. Same thing here. I, yeah, I don't think we notice it too much or complain about it too much in basketball. I'm guessing after a few seasons, Chris, I think we're just going to start to get used to it. I think they'll find ways... 
I mean, what'll be really crazy, they don't have restrictions on moving outfielders. So it'll be really crazy if they start moving the left fielder over to play uh, to play Rover, right? To play short right field and create kind of a triangle situation in right and center uh, against a Jose Ramirez type. You know, someone who is just determined. He's I'm like, I look, I hit the ball ridiculously hard. I'm just going to pull it. Good luck defense. Even with the shift on, he's like, good luck defenders. I'm just going to hit the crap out of the ball. So it'll be interesting. Would they pull a left fielder across and create like a diamond formation, a triangle formation out there uh, to try to prevent Jose Ramirez from getting a hit? So they still have a little bit of flexibility on where they can line up, but it is going to be much more restricted next season, and we'll see. We'll see what happens. Do I hate these rule changes? No, I don't I don't think they're going to destroy the game of baseball or anything like that. I don't hate the rule changes. The shift, yeah, I agree with you. I do like the idea of being able to hit the opposite way and hit it where they're not. Uh, and uh, to use your data to set your defense the best way you can set it. So I do like that part of the game, and that is going to be severely limited by this rule. So, Chris, I do agree with you there, but is he going to... You know, is it really going to be destroy the game? I'm guessing after a few seasons of this, it'll kind of fade into the background. You'll always know it's a rule, but it'll fade into the background and just we'll get we'll just play the game and we'll just play the game uh, and we won't think about it too much. So thank you, Chris, for the email. Thank you for guiding us through these rule changes and the conversation about the rule changes. All right, let's wrap this thing up. Uh, again, the final from Minnesota. Thanks for joining me on this Cleveland Baseball Morning. It's the Guardians 6, the Minnesota Twins 4. It's been a nice series in Minnesota. Let's go finish it off today. We got Bieber on the mound against a rookie winder, a right-handed pitcher. So expect all those lefties to stay in the lineup. Expect them not to mess with the lineup too much. You can follow me on Twitter at Davey Barris. You can email the show at Mornings at gmail.com. Let me know your thoughts on the game, and we'll discuss them on the show. Also, I'm hosting this podcast on Anchor, so if you go to anchor.fm forward slash Cleveland Baseball Mornings, you can leave a voicemail for the show. We'll play them back in the air, respond to your thoughts, and we'll have a fun conversation amongst the fans about baseball. So thanks again for joining me on this Cleveland Baseball Morning. <laughs>